We'll get better. Okay, so let's focus on females. If you're female, any age, life stage, raise your hand. Okay, everybody else take notes. Some of you are shy. Come on, it's not, nothing wrong with being a female. Come on, get those hands up. Okay, so of you who are females here, any great-grandmothers here this morning? Yeah, there's a few. Wow, we had a lot in the first service. That was really good. Thanks. Uh, grandmothers? Okay, some of you have the same, uh, you fit in their category twice there, right? How about uh, mothers? Yeah, lots of mothers here. Good. How about expectant mothers? All right. Woo. Uh, any adoptive mothers here? Adoptive mothers? Yeah, a couple. Of, oh, good. Yeah, way to go. How about foster mothers? Any foster mothers in here? Can't see everybody, but I think I caught at least one there. And uh, how about anyone who, it hasn't been official, but you know, you know for sure, you took up the role of being a mother to someone else that wasn't your child. Uh, you, you assumed that role. Maybe it was a sister, maybe it was someone who was just a friend. But if any of those mothers here today, don't be shy. Raise your hand, okay? Any of those? So maybe a couple here? Yeah. What a great role. Okay, so how about this? Any woman here who ever in the way of a mother has given encouragement or wisdom or advice or tenderness or kindness or tough love or discipline or protection, or I could keep going down the list. You know what I mean. You've done that in a motherly way for someone as a friend or as a family member. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Guys, it doesn't count for you. Stop raising your hands. <laughs> just, just, the, just the ladies. Yeah. You know what? Some of you aren't telling the truth because I know you women. And I know that, that you all have this incredible ability to take mothering roles toward others. And, and that's just amazing. We honor all of you today. All of you women. You're created in the image of God. You've been given special gifts, abilities to, uh, to nurture, to teach, to lead, to love, to counsel, to guide, to help, in, and, in, and do that in many ways that are different than men are typically able to do. We're different. We know that. I mean, we're really different. We had Les and Leslie Parrott, authors, psychologists, marriage experts, here at Northwest Hills a few years ago. And I noticed in one of their books, this little sidebar, what, uh, it's a list. What women want, what men want. What women want, to be loved, to be listened to, to be desired, to be respected, to be needed, to be trusted, and sometimes just to be held. What men want. Tickets for the World Series. End of list. It's not quite that bad. But we are very, very different. And so, ladies, today, we just want to know that, that uh, we honor all of you here. We're thankful to God that he made you different than us because we really do need you. We're thankful that you use your God-given gifts and abilities to, uh, to love and serve others. And just speaking for all of us uh, on the male side of the aisle... Uh, we want to say thanks. Thanks today. Thanks for using those gifts and abilities, and we want to say you're amazing. We truly believe you're amazing. We just don't tell you that enough. We want you to know that you constantly bless us. We're very thankful for that, and we hold you in very, very high esteem. We truly mean that. We greatly value each one of you. And that's why I'm going to say every woman or girl, uh, female of any age, would you just stand up right now? I had you... How'd you do? Come on, it's not going to hurt. It's not going to hurt. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. All right. Okay, men, we owe them a standing ovation. So let's stand and ovate, okay? Here we go. And uh, just to show that, if, if you're standing, guys, next to like someone you actually know and are related to and can do this, just give them a hug before they sit down, and then you can all be seated. Okay, you guys, you did a lot better than the first service. The women had to go hug the guys a lot in the first service, so way to go, man, way to initiate. All right, having said all that, I want to acknowledge, ladies, that you're not perfect, okay? We know that because we do know that no one is perfect. And so, for instance, we know you moms especially, 
we know that you have had bad mommy moments. And we know, dads, that you have had bad daddy moments. I think you know what I'm talking about. Laurel and I sat around talking about it last night. There are those moments where you just don't quite come through as you should as a mom or a dad. And sometimes it, it just sticks out like a sore thumb. And, and sometimes there's a lot of other people watching. Like, like this is my bad daddy moment. I think I was in charge of the stroller at that moment in a JCPenney many years ago with a very hard cement kind of floor. And, and two of my kids in a double stroller. And, and while I'm looking around, uh, and my wife is shopping, I'm supposed to be watching, and I look around, and, and my, my, my son who's in the front stands up, and the stroller gets bumped a little bit by the, by the guy in the back there, and he does a somersault out the front, and he, and he splats on his back right on this concrete floor, which is bad enough because we felt bad, but it happened in front of, I don't know, tens of people standing around who all view this, watching in this mall, and, and I remember the, especially the look of absolute disgust on this one woman's face, like you were the worst parent in the world. And you know those moments, those bad mommy, those bad daddy moments? Every parent has them. One of the ones that, that uh, my wife has given me permission to share is when my, my son Timothy, you know, boys, boys can't see any reason why to go down the slide the way you're supposed to go down it. You have to do it different ways, right? So he fell off the slide at school, and uh, my wife gets a call. Uh, Tim's here in the office. He has had an accident. That person's being very calm and, and uh, explaining and not oh, going overboard. Had an accident. Uh, he's going to need to see a doctor. So if you could come over to the school. And my wife's taking all this in. Okay, he falls off, slides all the time. You know, no big deal. So she proceeds to finish her work, which I think she told me was fertilizing the garden, right? So she does all this. She cleans up. She gets around to getting to school about an hour or so later. She comes by the office and she finds Tim sitting in a chair outside the office door with a very, very sad look on his face and an arm that's broken by a compound fracture. It's going all the wrong direction. He's been sitting there an hour and he's looking like, Mom, where have you been? And of course, the people in the school office are like, Mom, where have you been? You bad mom. It just happens because we're not perfect. It's hard for us to do life well. It's very hard for us to do life well, first of all, because we are all very, very fallible. You see the nice little article in the paper uh, yesterday, uh, maybe it was yesterday, I'm not sure, but just within a day or two ago, of uh, one of our members, I don't, I don't know if he's here this morning or not, but Phil Dowd, uh, owner of John and Phil's, uh, retired from, uh, I don't know, 40-some years in the, in the auto business, has sold it now, and that was a, a monumental achievement, and he did a great job, and so he had a little article in the paper. And in the article, they were quoting him, and one of the things they quoted him on was the changes that have been made uh, in, in automobiles. Like, for instance, in 1970, when he started that dealership, you could buy a brand-new Corolla for $1,675. Prices have changed a little bit, haven't they? But he also talked about how all the, the major safety improvements, you know, that happened uh, that have happened in the cars, have so many, so, built so much better, so many safety features now. But I loved his quote at the end. He said, the only thing that hasn't gotten safer is the nut behind the wheel. <laughs> little double meaning of the word nut there, right? Sometimes he says the nut behind the wheel gets a little tight and then we have problems. Doesn't that not describe us well as human beings? We are fallible and the fact is that we struggle with that, and we struggle even more because there are many, many obstacles in our lives that can derail us from being what God created us to be and doing what God created us to do. We face a lot of trials. We face a lot of temptations. And there are forces we know, both human and spiritual, that both unintentionally and intentionally work against us. And that makes life hard. And our sense of failure, our sense of inadequacy, our sense of fatigue in pursuing the, the goal and fighting the battle to be what God wants us to be and do, uh, that all gets to us sometimes and we get really down and we just feel like giving up. And some of you may be in that exact place this morning and you feel like, oh, Mother's Day just reminds me of all of that today. But there's good news for us today that we can receive from a bad mommy story in the Bible. Are you ready? It's a good one. Bad mommy story in the Bible, Luke chapter 2. That's where we're going to be. So gospel of Luke chapter 2, you want to get there. You've probably read this before. Maybe some of you haven't. It's not real popular in terms of a, of a story to, to preach on, but it's, it's a very important passage. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 39. 
This is a really unique uh, portion of scripture because it contains the only account of any incident we have in the boyhood of Jesus. The only authentic account of anything that happened during the boyhood of Jesus. Matthew and Luke tell us about his birth. They tell us some of the things that happened to him early on in infancy. But there is no other authentic record of Jesus' life until the time he began his ministry about age 30. So this is a pretty special uh, passage. Let's just read it. So I'm out of my New American Standard uh, translation. You'll have something close if you don't have this. Verse 39, when they, that would be Joseph and Mary, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. That is, they followed the, the law for Israel, God's law for his people at that time of bringing a firstborn son to the temple, presenting him to the Lord in the way that that was done. When they had performed that, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. The child, that of course would be Jesus, continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him, that would be Jesus, were amazed at his understanding and his answers. But when they, Mary and Joseph, saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. He said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Mom and dads, uh, I hope this is some immediate encouragement for you here in Scripture Does it not ease your troubled mind, uh, ease that burden uh, of a heavy heart? Does it not lighten that load in regard to your sense of inadequacy as a parent? I think it should because, because here you see two very wonderful people. It's Joseph and Mary. They're not semi-deities, okay? Let's, let's make sure we understand. These are not semi-deities as some have wrongly made them out to be. They're not uh, Superman and Superwoman. They're very ordinary people, but they're very godly people. They're wholly devoted to the Lord. They're full of faith in God, and they're willing to serve God in any way that God has called them to serve. And so they are then also entrusted uh, with something very important to God. They're entrusted to raise the one and only Savior of the world. Minor little mission, huh? But they're entrusted with that, and they lost the Savior of the world for three days. They lost him for three days. They left him behind alone without provisions in a big city, teeming with festival goers from all sorts of places, some of whom might have been very glad to grab a stray kid for a slave or some other purpose. It seems that this happened probably in a very typical, innocent way. It probably went like this. We know that those who would go up to to the festival to Jerusalem... They would travel. That almost always meant walking unless you were really far away and had to take a ship first and then walk. But they would travel then in caravans to uh, Jerusalem, walking along in these caravans. Neighbors, uh, villages, people who lived in the same village, you going up this year? Yeah, okay, well, I'll go together. They would caravan there. And then they would caravan back home. And at the, at the evening times, they would stop. They would camp all together. And, uh, and, and we can just kind of imagine how this all, all went. Uh, they would walk along. Families would, would intermix with each other. Neighbors would. They would be spread out during the day. They'd come back together at night. Everybody would get back together. We kind of know that uh, from, from later sources that, that one of the habits that may have gone back as early as this was typically the women and the children would often start off first. They would walk and then the men would follow along behind. The men would kind of give them a head start, knowing that the the women and children would be a little slower. So they'd be spread out, but eventually they'd all catch up together. So then as as Mary and Joseph are leaving Jerusalem, the caravan's about to leave, everybody's moving back to Nazareth uh, now, Jesus evidently was still lingering at the temple area. And neither Joseph nor Mary noticed it. 
Neither one noticed. At the end of the day, they, they catch up at the overnight stop. And you can kind of imagine how the conversation goes. Mary's probably there first. She's making dinner. Joseph comes up. Hey, how you doing? You have a good day? Yeah, it was great. We had a good day. We're walking on. Who'd you walk with today? Good. Oh, by the way, where's Jesus? Well, he's with you. No, he wasn't with me. He's with you. No, remember back at the temple? I said you were going to do this and, and we meet you there. Oh, no, but I said that you were going to meet them over there and he was going to go with you. And this conversation goes on until finally they realize it doesn't matter. He's not here. And they look all around. They can't find him anywhere. And they can only... Uh, come to understand at that point, we left him in Jerusalem. And it's night and it's dark and it takes a whole day to get back. So he's already been missing one day and it takes him another whole day to get back. And then in Jerusalem, the third day, it evidently takes him a long time to find him in Jerusalem because the last place they thought to look was the temple. But finally, they did find him. Finally, they found him. It wasn't intentional, uh, the mistake they made. It was just kind of one of those foolish mistakes. It was, it was kind of nobody's fault and everybody's fault, but it led them to be really miserable for a couple of days. Can you imagine? Can you imagine just how miserable they were? In fact, the, the text here in verse 48 where it says they were anxiously looking for them, it's a really interesting Greek word in the text. It, it literally could be translated, they were painfully looking for him. They were in pain the whole time they were looking for him. Bad mommy, bad daddy experience right there. But then we see when they, when they found Jesus, they, they didn't really, really react maybe in the best way there too, did they? Did you notice Mary's word? Why have you treated us this way? Like it was all his fault, right? She blames him. Blames him. Why are you hiding in the temple? Not to pile on here, but, uh, but you can also catch this other mention of maybe the lack of perfection here. Just in verse 49 where Jesus gives them an answer which basically says, if you were looking for me, didn't you think that maybe the temple would be the first place to look? That was the gist of, of Jesus' reply to them, right? Because, because this is my father, my heavenly father's work that I'm about. And, and, and it says that, that Mary and Joseph just, just had no clue. They just didn't understand it. They, they basically say, we don't, we don't get it, it says there in the, in the text. And, and, you know, that wasn't necessarily a sin, you know, there. Uh, but, but it was kind of odd that they would say that. Because, because truly, they had known that Jesus was a special child. He was born miraculously. And, and they, they see all the things that happen around the birth. You know, the coming of the shepherds, the coming of the magi, the meeting with uh, Simeon and Anna in the temple. All these amazing things happen that confirm this is truly the Messiah. This is Jesus. This is a different kind of child who has a different relationship with God than any other person, who has a different mission than any other person, whose passions and interests and habits are going to be different than any other, uh, other children in, in, in various ways. And they weren't sinning necessarily by not grasping it at that moment, but it kind of indicates that as 12 years had gone by, as 12 years had gone by and a normal sort of life had been lived, that they, they kind of lost maybe the, the dialing into the fact that Jesus was growing up to be this person that God said he was going to be. They just were kind of missing that. And this was almost a wake-up call for them. You need to be more attentive to your role because Jesus is changing and you are still responsible to raise him up to an adult. But, you know, even though they weren't perfect parents, God was still with them. And God was still patient toward them. We see him not sweeping in here and saying, okay, that's it, last straw, I'm giving him to somebody else. He's forgiving of, of, of mistakes, God is. He's, he's helping them to fulfill their, their role. He's making up for what they lacked. And that's exactly how God deals with us. There are no perfect parents, but God who is perfect comes to the aids of parents, the aid of parents who walk with him. And just take that to heart, his compassion, his tenderness, his willingness to help you even after you've messed up. We note here that there were some, some good reasons why God was, was very favorable toward them. Don't miss this. They did have their, their relationship with God established and in order. They were diligent about, about the, the spiritual discipline of being in worship. And they were diligent about, about modeling and setting a good standard of what it means to, to, to be a follower of God. And they were living according to God's word. And, and these are components to our role as parents. And, and we have to take those seriously. By saying how God intervenes, let's don't get the wrong idea that, oh, well, it's okay, we just don't have to do anything and God will take care of it all. No, he entrusts us to, to raise our children in the right way. And so we need to be living these components of a walk with God in our own life, transferring it to our children. We need to be diligent about that. 
But be encouraged. God is always going to be a helper to those who walk with him in that way. Always. If you're in relationship today, know this. He's helping you now. Even if you're struggling right now with something in your life, something in your family, and you feel like it's because of something we've done wrong or something big just came up we never knew about. Listen, God is already there working. If you're in relationship with him, he's already there working. But here in this portion of Scripture, Luke helps us to understand this in a a little deeper way. Luke wants us to understand the, the breadth and the depth of that help that God gives to us, the greatness of it. And he does that by emphasizing something that we should never forget, and that's that Jesus was fully human. What Luke wants us to really pick up here is that Jesus was fully human. That's actually an aspect of, of, the, of the gospel of Luke from the beginning to the end, that Luke wants us to be reminded Jesus was fully man. Now, for some people, that's not a big deal at all because that's all they think of Jesus as being, just another human being, just another man. But the scripture tells us otherwise, of course, that Jesus was fully God. Over and over, the Bible affirms that unequivocally. He was fully God. We know that he claimed to be God. We know that he proved it too by his words, by his deeds, by his fulfillment of ancient prophecies, by his resurrection from the dead, by his ongoing undefeated ministry, his church never being shut down despite constant attempts, the fact that people are still being transformed by Jesus Christ when they put their faith in him. All this evidence confirms Jesus Christ, fully God. He was, he is the son of God who came to earth to be with us, to explain God to us, to bring salvation, to provide salvation for us. And that's good that we recognize that. But, you know, it causes some of us, especially Christians, though, to stop thinking about him being fully man. We think, oh, he was, he was fully God, yes, but we don't really concentrate on that humanity much. He was both. He was fully God and he was fully man. Coming to earth, he never stopped being God. How could he? How could he stop being God? Because that's what he is. But to help us, we know this, he voluntarily set aside the independent use of all his divine attributes. And he took upon himself humanity through the miracle of a virgin birth. He took upon flesh and blood. He became a real man in every respect. He partook of of everything that belongs to man's nature. It wasn't just that he had a physical body, but every aspect, personality, emotions, uh, mind, every part uh, of of this person, the psychology of a person, he took it all on. Everything except one thing, sin. sin. And so he became perfect God and he became perfect man at the same time. And we say, I can't grasp that, and none of us can. We can't fully understand it right now. There's a sense that Scripture tells us that when we are with God in eternity, we're going to have greater understanding of things uh, then uh, than we do now. I don't know how much we'll fully ever understand God because he is so incredibly different than we are. None of us have created a universe lately, have we? None of us are omniscient. None of us are omnipresent. We may never fully grasp God. Maybe we'll get some better clues. There's some things we just can't fully grasp, but we know that it happened, that Jesus was fully God, fully man. We accept it by faith, but our faith is based on on evidence that we have and the conviction that God brings to us in our heart. But coming to that belief that he's fully uh, God uh, and fully man, that he was, is, fully God, fully man, Sometimes we get confused in there and we do, we do lose sight of his humanity. We think that maybe he was something less. I mean, even if we acknowledge it, well, I have my right theology. He was fully God, fully man. In our mind, we're thinking, well, as a man, though, he wasn't quite really a whole, like, like a real man like, like us. But, but as Luke will continue to point out in his gospel, that's not the case. Luke, throughout his gospel, wants to dispel that notion. He begins uh, this section of scripture in verse 39. Notice saying, that, uh, that when Joseph and Mary returned from, from Jerusalem, went back to Nazareth, and they had a little side trip to Egypt, that they settled down there in Nazareth. And verse 40 says, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom. That is, Luke is saying when Jesus was born, guess what? He was a helpless little baby like all of us at that age. But then he began to develop normally as healthy human infants do after birth. And you know what? He wasn't a super baby who was immediately mature. He, he began to grow physically and mentally and morally and spiritually just as well-cared-for children do. No different. He was not some super alien type of being 
some Superman kind of, of baby, you know, a super baby that came from space. Now, if you're reading the apocryphal gospels, those are the ones we know that are float around out there. They have for centuries and centuries and centuries. And these apocryphal gospels, I call them apocryphal because that, that just, know, just know that means not authenticated. They're just stuff that's been made up and, and put together. And there may be, who knows, some, some points of truth somewhere in them, but generally they're not true. If you read some of these apocryphal gospels, I mean, the, the character, uh, characterization of Jesus as a child is pretty amazing. I mean, they have him being some, some really weird child. They have him being extremely mature and able at the youngest age. It, it's almost like some of them are like a Disney movie. There's one of them where it talks about lions and leopards coming to worship him, you know, when he's a little child. And he accepts this worship from these lions and leopards that come to him. There's one, there's one apocryphal passage that says that uh, Jesus is walking along with his mom and he comes to a palm tree and he tells the palm tree to bend down and give his mom some fruit because she needs some refreshment. The palm tree bends down and gives Mary some fruit. Never happened. There's some stories about Jesus, you know. He's, he's doing the Play-Doh kind of thing, except in his day, you know, it's, it's just clay. And he's making these birds, and he makes these pretty birds, and then he decides he wants them to be better than that. So he claps his hands, and they all become real birds, and they fly around, and he plays with them, and that kind of thing. Some of the more extreme apocryphal passages get really weird. They have Jesus, you know, getting mad at something going on, and so, you know, he steals something or he kills something or whatever just to take vengeance on someone, and it's really bizarre. That's not the biblical picture at all. Jesus was a very normal child. He lived a normal childhood. Then down at verse 52, at the end of the chapter, Luke mentions a similar comment about Jesus, really covering from about age 12 upward to adulthood, 18, 20 years, that, that Jesus kept increasing. This is what it said. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Luke is using terms that just apply to human beings here. And he's saying Jesus continued to, to become mature as healthy teenagers do physically, mentally, spiritually, even socially, it says here, he grew into an adult. Day by day, week by week, month by month, he grew into a strong, impressive young man. He's not freakish, he's normal. Verse 46, we kind of see this just in those growing up years. He's left behind in Jerusalem, and he uses his time pretty well. He's fascinated by the temple. He's fascinated by the word of God. And it says he's sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking questions. Isn't that interesting? He's learning Scripture just like anyone else would learn Scripture. He's discussing theology to get it just like any other person would. Now, at age 12, he certainly seems to have a special gift for it, does he not? And we would imagine that God certainly gave him a gift just like we have our spiritual gifts from God. But there he is. There he is, and, and he's, he's learning, he's growing in every human normal way. And so what's the significance of that for us? First and foremost, we know this, that, he, that the fact that he was fully human means this, that he was qualified then to pay the penalty for our sin. He was qualified to pay the penalty because God, who is totally just and righteous, always upholds justice and righteousness. And the penalty for sin in this universe the penalty for sin in this universe is death, physical death and spiritual death, separation from life and separation from God. And so for us to be pardoned by this righteous and just God, a human who was not guilty of sin would have to pay the penalty for us. But there was no human available to do that because all humans are sinners. But when the perfect son of God became man, he was the one person qualified to pay for our sins and he would pay for them by his death on the cross. His humanness made that possible. And he paid it all for us in that way. He paid it for us. You ever read that story about the, uh, the, the boy who comes to his, to his mom while she's working in the kitchen? And, uh, and he, just, he just sits down at the counter where she's working and just puts a piece of paper in front of her that he's written on. And on the paper, there, there's a list, and it says this, cutting the grass, $10, cleaning my room, all week, $5, running errands, $2, babysitting, $10, taking out the garbage, $2, maintaining good grades, $5, total owed today, $34. Obviously a ploy to get some money, right? So the mom being a wise mom, as the story goes, dries her hands off, sits down, reads it, turns it over, starts writing on the back. Nine months of pregnancy, no charge. Late night feedings, no charge. Diaper changes, no charge. Potty training, no charge. Bandaging scrapes and scratches, bedtime stories, doctor and dentist visits, no charge. Taxi service, no charge. 
Academic tutoring, no charge. Seasonal cheerleading, no charge. Hugs and encouragement, no charge. Adequate training, no charge. Food procurement and meal preparation, no charge. Clothes, toys, no charge. And as the story goes, the, the son looks at, looks at it. Again, nobody's spoken a word. He turns it back over to his side and writes, paid in full. <laughs> Hands it back to his mom. Here's the deal. We owed a debt to God that we could not pay. Jesus becoming man meant he could pay it for us, and he did. He paid it in full. Luke wants us to remember that. That's what the humanity of Jesus helped us with. But Luke has something more in mind for us than emphasizing just that. As he emphasizes Jesus being fully human, he wants us to understand that Jesus was human, but but he was more than just, well, he had the body of a human. Luke wants us to understand Jesus experienced human life in the same way that we experience it. I'll say that again. Jesus experienced human life in the same way that we experience it. He fully experienced, as we already said, he fully experienced being a helpless baby dependent upon a mama. He fully experienced being a young child who had to learn to walk and learn to talk, who had to learn to read and learn to write. He went through those experiences. He had to learn to live under the care of of parents and to live under the authority of parents who were imperfect, like us. He experienced growing up in a home where, guess what? Money was tight. Not a lot of luxuries. Some of you can relate to that, can't you? He experienced being a 12-year-old. He experienced turning a teenager. He experienced running around with other adolescents that age. He went through all those experiences of of going through that, that time of life. He experienced being a child who was left behind by his parents and then got blamed for it, even though it wasn't his fault. He experienced living with siblings. Did you know that? Yeah, it says it right there in Scripture that he had sisters, plural. We don't know how many, but he had sisters. And he had brothers. He had four. We know that because we're actually told their names in the Scripture. Matthew chapter 13. Guess what the names of his brothers were? James, Joseph, Simon, and catch this, Judas. No, not that Judas. That was a common name. One of his brothers' name was Judas. Did you know that his brothers gave him a hard time? None of you ever had any problems with your brothers or sisters, right? Well, he did. He did. He had problems with his brothers and sisters. Go read, for instance, in John chapter 7. And you'll see that his brothers, you know, as his time of ministry is beginning, his brothers are hassling them. At that time, at that time, they don't even believe anything about him being special. At that time, they they don't think he's that special. And they're hassling him about whether he's going to go to to a religious festival or not. They're bugging him and they're bugging him. They're on his case. He experienced that. He experienced, you know what? He experienced learning a trade. We know that because his father, Joseph, was a carpenter. And then Jesus is specifically listed in Scripture as also being a carpenter. He must have apprenticed in his father's shop. You know how that goes, right? That's good and bad when you work for dad. Right? A lot of blessings, but sometimes a lot of strain in there too, right? But that's what he did. You know, the evidence seems to indicate that, that Joseph, his, his legal father, his father by law, that Joseph probably died before his ministry ever began because we never see Joseph's names mentioned anywhere after Jesus' time. And that's highly unusual that that would be the case. So it seems likely that Joseph died, which would mean then that that passage where it describes Jesus not as an apprentice carpenter, but as a carpenter himself, he was probably the one supporting the family as the oldest child. He knew what it was like to go to work every day. He also knew this. He knew how to dwell in obscurity for years and years. He knew that he had a mission to accomplish, but that he had to keep waiting and waiting because Well, we read about him here at age 12. It was 18 years later before his ministry starts, and he dwells in obscurity. But then guess what? Did you read that portion of Scripture where when he starts his ministry, he gets the attention of a lot of people pretty quickly, but the very people who lived in his hometown don't like it. They don't like, they don't believe in him. They don't like him. They don't like the fact that he's getting all this honor, and they turn their backs on him. They reject him. 
people he grew up with. He experienced all the ups and downs then of having to train people. <laughs> Ever done that? To train others? And, uh, and he, he gets these guys who are the 12 disciples, and they turn out pretty good in the end, but they're real knuckleheads to start with. And he has to put up with all these knuckleheads for, for three years until he gets them trained. And he ends up also putting, a, uh, putting up with people who constantly want his attention. We think we had busy lives. Jesus had to sneak away in the night to mountains or, or desert places just so people wouldn't bother him. Then, of course, he had all these enemies who were determined to bring him down. And then he experienced facing death. He knew that death was coming, that it was unavoidable. And he experienced waiting for it. He knew that suffering would happen, and he had to live with that, knowing that he would suffer. And then he actually did suffer, and then he actually did die. And through it all, he has this constant, overwhelming pressure to give in to temptation, to chuck it all, to escape the pain, the hardship, the frustration, to not do the will of, of God the Father in heaven. He has all of this pressure. He does, though, become victorious over it, but he has to experience it all. And so Jesus Christ, the man, the fully human man, experienced the full range of human life that we experience. You know, the usual response to that is, well, he wasn't a woman. You know, he never went through what we women went through. Or, you know, he, did, he never had to work on a computer like I have to work on a computer. But the point is this, that, that there, you know, behind every specific trial or temptation, there are basic roots, root trials, root temptations in there. And he experienced all of those, no matter what the specific we might, might count it toward. Any sort of temptation we experience, he went through it. Several verses from the New Testament book of Hebrews let us know the importance of this. And so you might want to write them down. Just write down the addresses here. You can look them up later. I'll read them to you. But, okay, so the first one is this, Hebrews 4.15. Hebrews 4.15, here's what it says. We do not have a high priest, that would be Jesus, the intercessor between us and God the Father. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Number two, Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 18, Hebrews 2, 18. Since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, notice that he suffered in his temptations there. Since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. One more, Hebrews 4, 16. Hebrews 4, 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. That's the throne where God the Father, Christ the Son are so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Consider these verses together, and here's what we're left with without a doubt, that Jesus Christ is the ultimate Savior, the one who saves us from sin and condemnation and separation from God, but also the best friend we could ever have. He is indeed the best friend we have, for not only is he the connector to God, the connection to God's forgiveness, the connection to relationship with God, but he's a willing and able helper to us. He takes that role of helper to us. Think about this. Because Jesus was fully human as well as fully God, first of all, he never misunderstands us and he never misjudges us. You ever been misunderstood or misjudged? Someone judged your actions or your motives and they judged you wrongly? Jesus never does that. He understands us perfectly. He knows all about our circumstances. He knows what we're wrestling with in our circumstances. He knows our sorrow. He knows our pain. He knows our anger. He knows our disappointment. He knows our frustration. He knows our feelings of betrayal and rejection. And he knows the, the temptation to fear and doubt. And he knows the temptation to take revenge or abandon someone or lie or steal or act selfishly. He knows that. He knows exactly what we're going through, and he knows it all. In fact, he, we don't want to get too off track here, but, but do you understand that Jesus, because he experienced the full range and because he hung through temptations of the highest extreme and was victorious, he suffered more in those temptations than we will ever have suffered on earth. But because of all that, he fully understands us, and so he never misjudges us. He doesn't misjudge us morally, 
When other people are saying, you know, you're wrong, you've done the wrong thing, and they're all on our case about it, and if that's not true, he knows it. He doesn't misjudge us emotionally. He doesn't misdiagnose our feelings. Oh, you're just being, you know, you're, getting, you're too overbearing on this. You're making too much of it. No, he knows. He knows us situationally. He knows what, uh, what we're really up against. He really grasps all the dynamics of our situation. You ever had somebody just tell you, well, you're just not seeing it rightly. And you know you are. But Jesus, Jesus knows you are too. Because of that, we're told here, because of that, because he's been there, because he's done that, it says here specifically that he has sympathy for us. And the word there means literally he feels us. He feels what we feel. Because he intimately knows how we feel in any given particular situation because he's been there. He relates intimately to the pain and the struggles we are experiencing. You ever experienced something and, and you went through it and ever since then you've been more sensitive? Like one of the times when I had to move as a kid, you know, I ended up in a place where, where, where I showed up. I had like all the wrong clothes for that place. I mean, literally style-wise. And I can remember the first time I went in a group and being totally laughed at and, and a period of time having to go by before it's like, oh, I figure out like how to look like everybody else here. And one of the things that did for me was give me a sensitivity toward others who are coming in a new place and are different. And so I have a tenderness in my heart whenever I see that happening. Well, Jesus has that tenderness in his heart for us when the things we've been through because he's been there. He's been there. He feels it. But not only that, because he's fully human, because he's been there, he knows exactly how to help us then. He knows exactly what we need in those situations, those challenges and trials. He knows what type of help we need. What type of help we need. You ever gone to someone for help and they just don't help you at all? My wife and I were talking about this and, and she was noting that, you know, a lot of times she'll ask someone for prayer and what she gets instead is advice. Right? She doesn't get the prayer. Just somebody tells her, oh, well, this is what you should do. Listen, Jesus knows exactly what we need at any given moment and he gives us then exactly what we need. The type of help that's needed. He knows how to, to assist us and support us. He knows how to teach us. He knows what we need to be taught. He knows what to instruct us in. He knows what to guide us to. So we, we react to sufferings and temptations so that we can be victorious over them too. You know, I, I've been wrestling recently with these different feelings about different things. And it's like, God, I don't even know how I should react. Should I be angry and get really forceful here? Or should I be humble and sit back and, and, and just wait? And I've had to pray and say, God, show me the right way to react. And God has, has faithfully showed me each time, this is the right thing to do in this instance, in this meeting with this person. But that's because he knows the right way to, to, give, uh, to give us the help. And with the help, he actually gives us the strength and the power to follow through. When we're struggling and saying, I don't have anything left, God, I just don't have anything left to put in it. He gives us the strength to go through with it because he knows exactly what we need. And the amazing thing is, it says here in Scripture that this is, this is all the time, that you can count on it all the time. Because Hebrews 2.17, that's not one of the verses I, I gave you previously, but he, Hebrews 2.17 says that he was made like us. He was made like us so that he might become, catch this, a merciful and faithful high priest. That tells us, first of all, that it's always been in God's plan that Christ wouldn't just be the Savior who, who bought us a ticket to heaven. He would be a helper to us. It was always God's plan that that would, would take place, and that's, that's the role he always takes. And it emphasizes that he is faithful. He's not just merciful, he's faithful. To God the Father in his ministry, and that ministry being us, he's faithful to us. He's trustworthy, he's reliable. I like what one author wrote about this. He said, Jesus as this God-man, is not a vacillating, capricious, occasionally unavailable helper, but he's one who's proved himself fully dependable and completely adequate in every experience of life. So no matter how many tough times you're piling up, he's there. And so the question is, well, why haven't I experienced this then? How come I haven't got it? Because these truths, these promises we know from Scripture, tell us there's some things that, that are dependent upon us. That he's the helper, but, but see, he's, he's arranged that there are some things that, that we must do. 
And the first is this. We must be in relationship with God. We need to be in real, right relationship with God the Father and Christ the Son. And how do we do that? Well, it's by belief in him for who he is. Fully God, fully man. The Son of God, the Savior of the world. We accept him as that. And as we accept him as that, then we we repent of our sin and our self-rule and we turn our lives over to him and we put all of our trust in him. We ask him for forgiveness of sins and we begin to follow him. Second of all, Scripture tells us this. In fact, we just read it here in those Hebrews verses. That God says the the condition for receiving, I'm giving, but the condition for receiving is ask. Come to me, trust me, seek me. Just like you would seek a human friend for help, come to me. God wants that relationship. He values it. Hebrews 5.16, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may uh, may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Jesus told us over and over, God is willing to help, but he wants us to come in dependence on him. That keeps us in a right relationship. That keeps us in worship. That keeps us humble. So we must come to God in that way. And then the third way is simply this, obedience to him a willingness to follow his instructions to us, a willingness to go after the example of of right action, right behavior provided by Jesus. God only helps us if we're doing the basics, if we're doing the right things. Now, if we're moving toward him, he'll help us along while we're still figuring it out. But if we know the basics, if we know the basics of a Christian life and we're turning our back on him, then there's a problem there. There's a strain, there's a stress in the relationship. And really, we need to understand this. We can only be helped if we follow his instructions because when we come and say, God, I really need your help. I really need to know what to do. And God says, okay, well, here's the way to go. Here's the right thing to do. And we go, I don't want to do that. Give me plan B. Give me another way because I don't want to do that. You see, the way that, that we actually get helped is we do what God tells us to do. Think about this today. How many of you here have been saying, God, I need help with this. God, I really need, I need this change. I need this help. I need this. And God says, okay, here, here's my plan. I'll be with you all the way. Okay, here it is. And he lays it out and you go, I don't want to do it. No, I'm not going to do that. There's your problem right there. God is a willing helper. He's a willing helper. And here's what you understand. You need to understand. He's always ahead of us for good. He's always ahead of where we are. He knows what's going on now, but he, he, knows, he knows how to be ahead of us in, in planning and arranging and providing what we need. Laurel and I have a dear friend, uh, uh, a mother, um, who when we first met her, we, were, we just had had our first child. And uh, she's, she became a good friend. She's just maybe a little bit older, not much older than me. Um, maybe, maybe a little bit older than my wife, a little bit younger than me. And, uh, but but had, she was ahead of us in terms of having kids and raising kids. And uh, she also had, had a lot of experience in church and ministry, and she really knew church and ministry inside out. And she just kind of unofficially adopted us when we first met her. And she's still one of our best, dearest friends. And so she would, she would be there when we would call and say, you know, our baby's doing this. What do we do? Well, here's what you do. And you know, when our kids were teenagers and we were still calling going, what do you do when you got a boy who won't do his homework and no matter what, it's not working? Okay, here's what you do, she would say. But she was always ahead of the game too and still is. When we first moved into the city where we moved in, we had a washer, we didn't have a dryer. She made sure we got a dryer because she looked around ahead of time and said, they need a dryer. So she had one supplied for us. There were times when she just would pick up the kids and go, you need a day off, I'm taking the kids. There were some times when she said, Here, here's, the, here's the money, here's the, here's the reservation in Santa Cruz for the weekend. I got your kids for the weekend. It's all paid for. Go. And she's still that friend today. And she's the picture of God. That's how God works in your life. He's just looking and saying, okay, I, I am your helper. I just need a little cooperation for me to give you all the things I want to give you, to help you in all the ways I want to help you. It's A.W. Tozer who said, famous quote, the voice of God is a friendly voice and no one need fear to listen to it. 
unless he's already made up his mind to resist it. When you turn to God, the saying goes, you discover he's been facing you all the time. How about you today? Is that where you are? You need to be turned to God? We're going to close here and pray. I'm going to ask us all to stand. Let's do it. Today, as we end the service, we'll be worshiping with music. You can see that the the tables are still here in the room. Communion is available for you to take it. The place you can give your offering if you want to do that. There'll even be some folks over here today. You'll see them, notice them. There's some of our leaders of our church. If you just need somebody to pray with about, hey, I need you to pray with me about this. That's, That's good. But let's just do it right here and let's just be real honest with God. Heavenly Father, I first want to thank you again for these women who are in the room. And I thank you, Lord, for the great burdens they take upon themselves and the roles they play. Lord, it's just amazing. Lord, many of them are feeling the weight of that today. I pray that this message will encourage them, that they'll be able to take it from here. And I pray, Father, that you would help them to entrust you with all that they're dealing with. Father, I pray you give them great blessings and that you would bring to them others who behave like you, friends like our friend who help others. Lord, I pray great blessings upon them in this Mother's Day weekend. Father, I also uh, ask for all of us, Lord, there's some of us we just need to wake up today to the reality of not turning to God or not believing God or not walking with God. Lord, shake us up. Help us to understand that. Lord, let us be wise to know when we're not getting right answers because we're not doing the right things. But Lord, fill our minds and hearts with this great truth of Jesus Christ, fully man, who's experienced everything we're going through. He knows us intimately. Father, let us not forget that. Make us strong, Lord, to respond to you. We thank you. We praise you. Lord, in this time that we sing, that we take communion, Lord, we're committed to confession of sin, if that's, if that's what needs to happen here this morning. We're committed to calling out to help for help from you, to not being so prideful, for not blaming you, but seeing you for who you are. And Lord, you're going to hear our cries for mercy in particular areas. We pray with confidence, as Hebrews said we should, that we can lay it all out before you. And Lord, we're just excited about that, that we will pray with confidence, knowing that you are a merciful and faithful high priest. But Lord, also help us to remember that your schedule often is different than ours. Sometimes you answer right away, and sometimes you take us along a longer path. Lord, just make us wise about all this. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.